Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Bleh. This is a conversation with Bob Nalbandian. Now Bob has a very long and storied career in the music industry and we focus on the more recent parts of his career, uh, notably the Shockwave School Sessions podcast and his documentary series Inside Metal. Well, obviously a point of interest to me is he is uh, the Steve Ricardo of the West Coast in that he opened the LA office for Roadrunner and that's a little bit of a blind spot in my research so I was very very happy to speak with Bob and unpack some of that uh, for the project. So let's jump into it. Thank you very much to Bob. Keep your eye out for the Bay Area Godfathers documentary that should be approaching streaming services soon. But just give Inside Metal a bit of a googs, mate. You'll get all the information there. All right. One, two, fuck it up. I had a really, really hectic few interview weeks. So I had, um, I had one earlier today. I had a podcast last night and last week I had five interviews over four days. And then the rest of the time I spent editing that, one of which was Mike Varney. Who oh, also- really? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. He's a great yeah. dude, Mike. He was oh, in man. a couple of my documentaries, yeah. Yeah, I saw, I was I was just like that um, that Leonardo DiCaprio meme. When I saw Mike Varney in, in the Bay Area Godfather, I was just like, I'm speaking to him tomorrow. That's great, yeah. Now, is that for Roadrunner road too, or is that something different? Yep, all for Roadrunner. So all your podcasts are for, okay. That's my, right, my. he... Uh, he uh, did um, Roadrunner distributed the shrapnel stuff overseas for him. Yeah, for yeah. Him. I, sp- I spoke to Brian Slagle as well. So you have these titans of metal industry. And right. I just forced him into talking about <laughs> another company. Well, cool. But yeah, well, it, was, it, was, it was really good because obviously with, with shrapnel, it was very much a US operation up until 85 when um, Case Vessels came into the picture and started sending the guitar virtuosity that he was so well known for overseas and into Europe and even into Japan. And I thought that's, that's noteworthy as one, a business custom because case didn't need to do that. He didn't like roadrunner didn't need to go that far with it, but it just speaks to the, it spoke to the strength of the roadrunner brand that it was willing to make those connections and that the licensing arm was such a strong part of that business model. Well, it was a great business move. I mean, a lot of those... Do, do I, should I put on headphones? Am I echoing a bit? No, you're I, absolutely I got, fine. You sure? Okay. Um, but I was going to say, you know, labels like Roadrunner and, of course, Music for Nations, you know, they ended up licensing, you know, they licensed, you know, the Megaforce and, you know, uh, uh, I think some of the early Metal Blade stuff maybe as well. But uh, a lot of those... Um, European companies, they knew there was a huge market for this new up-and-coming U.S. bands, whether it be bands like, you know, Metallica and Slayer or, you know, Steeler with Ingve and mm. all these guitar hero kind of people, all the stuff that was out on Shrapnel, Exciter, you know, all those bands. So, you know, it was it was a good business move and it was a good, uh, good move for those. And then, of course, uh, you know, eventually Metal Blade started a European office and, uh, you know, Roadrunner took off on their own, obviously, uh, internationally. Mm. But... Um, you know, that was a big thing. I mean, in the 90s, I was licensing a lot of stuff to Japan, and it was really good money back then because a lot of these 80s metal bands that really, uh, you know, were kind of dead in the water in, in Los Angeles by the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, uh, Japan, they were still monstrous out there. So, you know, we could uh, get some good license deals uh, in, in Japan and territories like that, as well as Europe, you know. One of the main things I ask people with that kind of experience is why is Japan such a weird market? Because they have you have to, from a business perspective, you've got to devise an entirely new strategy to appease that market. And I, that's the thing I don't think anyone's prepared for. I don't think Brian was prepared for it. I don't think Case was necessarily prepared for it. I think Mike, just somehow, he had the product which responded really well. Yeah. You know but, well, they uh, love guitar virtuosos, you know. I mean, Marty Freeman's a guitar god out there, even before he moved out there, you know, with Cacophony. So was Jason Becker. Paul Gilbert is a guy. I mean, you know, nobody knows of Mr. Big here anymore. In Japan, they could still sell out the Tokyo Dome or whatever. Same with bands like Dokken and all those, you know, Firehouse and Danger Danger and bands mm-hmm. like that could go over to Japan and, and do very, very well still, uh, Steelheart. So it's, uh, you know, they're just old school. They don't, they never, you know, even though they are very trendy, 
when it comes to the pop music, you know, when it, you know, they're always been into musicianship, I think. And so uh, they never caught on to uh, the, the, you know, the grunge thing like we did. I mean, of course, a lot of those grunge bands are big out there, mm. but, you know, they still showed, it wasn't the type of thing, okay, now it's all about this. We got to drop the 80s stuff. They still had a love for good, talented, uh, you know, guitar playing and rock and roll. So, yeah, it's, it's not too much of a surprise. It's just, you know, more traditional, I think. Maybe it is like a prestige economy. Like we talk about virtuosity, but it's also like a collector's market. And in the, I think the two things that the thread that connects those things together is an element of prestige. I don't use the word elite. I think there's better words I could be using, but my vocabulary is failing me. But I think there's threads between these things which can outlie the Japanese market as, as to why certain things are effective there. And it is because the light yeah. guitarists, and I think they'll just like the like certain tangible things which is why they tend to like that they don't have a lot of clubs but they have a lot of vinyl cafes don't they where they basically it's just like a layout of a bar or a cafe or something like that and you can and it's just wall to wall full of vinyls yeah. i think I've it's heard some, yeah so i think there's just something to that which speaks to the japanese sensibilities which we as a market never really got on no never really understood and never really mastered but as time goes on we uncover and we um utilize and weaponize more things and more more things that we understand that they respond to and therefore we can cater for yeah yeah it's, well it's, i've never been to japan but what you're saying is definitely true especially when you say it's more of a tangible market you know cds are still huge in japan they still sell tons of cds uh mm-hmm. and that's where you know again a lot of bands and 80s bands do well there because they can make actually make money selling cds in Japan, because they like the tangible thing. I've got a good friend, John John Harrell from uh, Burn Magazine. He's the U.S. correspondent All for right. Burn, which is one of the biggest magazine rock magazines really worldwide now. Beautiful, full color. It's like a book. And I'm like, dude, how does that survive now? I mean, the print costs, and they pay incredibly well to the photographers and the staff. I said, how, you know, the, the market must have died. I mean, here, of course, here in the States, all those 80s magazines, you know, rip all those things. They're, they're, you know, they're dead. Everything's online. He goes, no, dude, it's still, he says, you know, might not be selling as well as it did in, in the 80s or 90s, but it's still selling great. So mm. Japan, they like that chance. They like the booklets the, you know, they read, read a lot of books, magazines, you know, a big giant full color magazines, CDs. They like that. You know, they're not just about downloading or reading blogs and this and that they want the actual physical product which i think is a great thing i, th- I wish it was kind yeah. of more like that here i mean i know there are a lot of collectors here that collect vinyl and cds and stuff but you know it's just the easy access and you know we've all been i've been spoiled that way you know with my you know because i live in a, a small apartment so I, I can't have the big vinyl and the, even my cd collections are like too much now and it's just so easy to go on, you know, Spotify or whatever, or YouTube and just, you know, at a click, you, you got it right there. So, you know, I, I understand yeah. both ways, but it, it's good that Japan is still, still old school like that. Yeah. 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 It keeps it challenging. Yeah. So, you know, vendors and suppliers. Anyway, Bob, I, I, I reached out to yourself because uh, a number, a number of reasons. One, I, I quite like your podcast. I was I was doing some research on the Roadrunner stuff. Um, and Monty Connor's quite is an, an elusive character in terms of the interview world. He doesn't do a right lot of them. But there was he was on Shockwaves a couple of times um, where I believe when he was arguing with yourself and uh, Martin Popoff about Aerosmith, early Aerosmith. That was like it's just oh, an geez, that was an oldie, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was just yeah. an enjoyable conversation to listen to. And then we it got love to, that. We love that. But him <laughs> and Martin go at it head to head. Then um, I got into a couple of the inside. Mel, um, documentaries. And then I realized, oh shit, I'm stepping on Bob's feet. This is, there's only, there's a Roadrunner documentary that's uh, bound to be made. And Bob might be the one that's already got it in the back of his head. So I best, I best have a chat with him to make sure I'm not, uh, I have to deploy some clash management or something like that. And then I checked out your LinkedIn and noticed, oh shit, you work at, you worked at the LA office. Right. And I, that's early, I only ball. worked there for a, a little while. Um, I never thought about a Roadrunner documentary. Actually, I don't know if that would be something I would uh, be, uh, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know that much about. I mean, I remember when the label started and Case Wessels and some of the early U.S. releases with Annihilator when Monty mm. first started. Because, you know, it was a small market. We all knew each other. I didn't, I don't know if I was actually ever pen pals with Monty uh 
Uh, I might have been, but I remember him at the radio station before Roadrunner. And so, you know, everyone kind of knew each other. You know, I was doing some stuff with Metal Rendezvous at the time, Metal Rendezvous magazine. And prior to that, I had my own fanzine called The Headbanger since 1982. So we were all in that clique, you know, Brian Slagle mm-hmm. and Ron Quintana and John Stranansky. And then, of course, the people overseas as well. You know, the guys from Kerrang! and Metal Forces and Hard Shock. You know, we all, you know, knew each other. And, uh, you know... Roadrunner was kind of a part of that click. And uh, uh, I don't know if you want to get jump into how, how I started there or Let, let's, let's, let's wait, because the reason I, I gave you like, I, usually I have like quite a lot of questions, but because your, your history and your CV is generally so rich, I was like, well, let me just, let me just put these questions in this order because I know we're going to go around the houses and we're going to go down many rabbit holes. So don't consider this, those questions like a limit. We should just do whatever the, the fuck we, we feel like. But I want to, I tend to always open it with like the pluggables and the things that you're doing now simply because I hate it when podcasts wait to the end of the interview to go, now tell me what you're doing, you know, this week. Oh, like, fuck that. Right. Tell me everything you're doing and then like, what's, what's your world looking like these days? Uh, right now, um, you know, it's, it's kind of mellow. I'm, I'm, uh, a bit older now, obviously, I still love, uh, I still have a passion for hard rock and metal and kind of doing the independent things. So, you know, I've kept the podcast going. I've obviously, as you spoke about, uh, directed the Inside Metal documentaries. We've got eight of them now. Uh, actually, four titles, each is two parts. So hmm. uh, actually eight movies. Uh, the latest one is Bay Area Godfathers. We just put out part two on DVD and we're waiting for it to get to streaming uh, we had a little bit of technical issues with the audio uh, for some of the uh, digital markets. So we're getting that fixed. So it should go to streaming in a couple of weeks. But that's done very well. And of course, the Inside Metal LA titles, uh, Pioneers of LA Hard Rock and Roll, yeah. or Hard Rock and Metal, uh, you know, LA Metal Scene Explodes, and uh, Rise of LA Thrash Metal have done very well. And they're all available on Amazon Prime and Google Play and iTunes and, you know, uh, Voodoo, a lot of those uh, different digital sites. And uh, it's fun. It's, you know, very independent, very, um, you know, kind of, you know, more of a low budget kind of, but that's what I kind of like. It's that under, it kind of gives that underground feel and it kind of, you know, brings you back to that era, you know, of, of, mm. of that. And it kind of, uh, it's just fun doing. And same with the podcast. Uh, you know, we we keep it kind of old school, old school metal. We've had Monty on it a few times and the Shockwave Skull Sessions is more of a, discussion style podcast and we started that when i started that that was through roadrunner records website actually really when, when i did that in the uh uh when i started that what uh, 2008 2007 2008 uh because monty and i were doing um you know, I had him on my uh, uh, other podcast, the uh, Shockwaves Hard Radio, uh, with him, and we would go through um, uh, uh, discographies of bands. Mm-hmm. You know, Aerosmith is a Deep Purple, Judas Priest, and we did a couple of those. And he said, "Hey, man, this is a great thing. You, I'll see if I could maybe get Roadrunner to, you know, do it through the website." So he hooked that up, and you know, at the time, Roadrunner was also doing Blabbermouth. Uh, before they went independent and uh, so it was it was a good good avenue and it was fun and we just kept it fun so Monty wasn't in a lot of those especially going through the band catalogs which are always kind of a fun thing and you know sometimes we'd go over it with you know someone like Bill Ward we'd go over the Black Sabbath catalog or uh, you know uh, we did uh, or some recent ones with with Angel we went through the Angel catalog with Monty and uh, uh, Don Jameson and uh, so it's, it's always kind of fun, you know, doing that kind of thing. Um, and we did more thin Lizzie with Scott Gorham, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm doing now. So, uh, been doing that and a few other independent things, um, uh, here and there, but I still have my foot in the, you know, the, the, the metal scene just as more of an enjoyment thing. Not, yeah. I, I never wanted it to be work, so to speak, where I don't enjoy it. You know, I always said to myself is, you know, when I don't enjoy it, it's when I'm going to stop doing it. So I keep it where it's something that I could be happy with and, and still enjoy, you know, when it gets to something that it's too, too much bullshit, it's like, nah, that's when it's drop it. Yeah. I, I have production questions as, as, cause I watched the, um, the Bay area doc, mm. um, and obviously, as I'm about to embark on this journey doing this this roadrunner thing properly, I noticed you managed to get a, a very high volume of input from participants. Did you go out to each of those ind- individually, or did you have some of them film themselves? 
I'm trying to think. Uh, of, can you, see, I, you must have gone about it a really pragmatic way. And I'm trying to think of th- how, like, I'm not going to fly to Australia, but yeah. there was a roadrunner office in Australia. So is there a way around that? You know? <laughs> no, we actually, fortunately I'm, I'm from California, uh, LA. So, you know, when I did all the LA titles, it was very easy living in LA. Um, you know, we did take a couple trips. We, you know, we went to Metallica HQ where I filmed Lars uh, with my team, you know, Joe Floyd and Carl Alvarez at the time mm-hmm. and went to Vegas where we filmed a few people like Mike Varney who lives in Vegas now. And, but those are all easy, quick trips. And mm-hmm. then in the Bay area, actually, and um, I'm actually living up here now because my, my camera guy lives in San Jose and I was actually living in Sacramento driving back and forth doing interviews. And my uh, partner uh, and producer, John Stranansky, who did Metal Rendezvous magazine back in the 80s, and we've remained close friends. And he kind of, you know, he's got a full-time corporate job in, in Dallas, but he wanted to, you know, really get back involved. He had the itch to get back involved in metal. And, you know, he was able to take some time off and fly back. So he set up a lot of the interviews because he grew up in the Bay Area. He knew all mm-hmm. these guys. He was at all those early shows at the Stone and the Wolf of those first Metallica shows in, in uh, San Francisco. And uh, so he got a lot of the interviews. So to answer your question, yeah, we filmed everything pretty much ourselves. And then Danny Shipman, the other producer and who also edited the movie, uh, does a reality check TV. He did some of the interviews on his own with just right. his camcorder. So you see some of those little camcorder uh, interviews, which which I like. You know, a lot of people, you know, we had sometimes you get some QC issues with with, you know, that, you know, with the camera mic. But I think it's kind of it just shows us. You know, it's that gorilla type, you know, mm. filming, you know, so some of it's very professionally shot. Some of it's like that. Some of the people he got like Death Angel straight off the stage, you know, of, of a show. So uh, it, it kind of gives it that where it's not just a bunch of talking heads, you know, uh, you know, yeah. in this nice studio and everything's, you know, plush. So it's kind of got that diversity. So but yeah, all of them were shot between myself and, um, you know, my partner, um, uh, Alex uh alex gray who was uh the, the photographer on uh cameraman on most of the stuff uh and uh danny shipman pretty much and then uh uh were there any shot on i we might have had a couple people that uh shot stuff that were out of town i'm trying to think but you know a lot of the footage we shot were, were footage that were used in all the do- documentaries like dave manichetti we used him in all the la uh, documentaries because Y&T and yesterday and today, as they were at the time, used to come down to the Starwood and the whiskey and play all the time Mm -hmm. back in the early, as much as they played in San Francisco, they were down in L.A. So we had him and, of course, Lars and all these other people that were in the L.A. documents. So we had a lot of footage that was already shot, you know, and and, you know, what what made us what made me decide to do the San Francisco is we had so many people talking about going up to the Bay Area, not just the San Francisco bands, but, you know, bands like, you know, uh, Megadeth and and, and Suicidal and and, you know, uh, whoever, uh, Gene Hoagland, you know, with Dark Angel. And I said, you know, why not do something on the Bay Area one? It's, it's easy enough. And uh, so, yeah, it, that's how that came to fruition. I think it's a good thing, though, because ne- these days scenes, aren't, they are not geography specific. Mm. Um, it just isn't that way anymore. It, it, it's impossible with the way the information is like, decimated so, or disseminated, whichever the word is. So I think you did well to just cast the net nice and wide and get as many voices in who are still with us as possible. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you said that. I was talking to that to, about that to somebody the other day. And as close as L.A., because, you know, a lot of people from Europe and uh, others, or they, they don't know. Some of them don't realize how close L.A. is to San Francisco. You know, it's a, it's a seven-hour drive, if that, you know. So it's not, you know, geographically that that far. I guess, you know, Europe things are a bit different. I'm California, yeah. obviously, a very big state. But it's very similar. A lot of the L.A. bands, you know, uh, like, of course, Metallica, Slayer, Armored Saint, they would go to the Bay area they'd come back you know so it was you kind of had that mix but there was a definitely a different vibe and not just like from the la bands to the san francisco bands to the new york bands all a different sound and different kind of style whereas as you say now everything's you can be from anywhere i remember you know bands in australia they all had that acdc kind of bluesy you know whether it be acdc rose tattoo the angels 
you know, all those bands. And then you had, uh, you know, the bands I remember, Taipan, Bengal Tigers, all these different bands coming out of there. And they had a certain sound. The French bands, they all sang in French. They all had a very unique sound, you know, that can, the, the uh, German bands had that very, that kraut metal sound. They all sounded like either Scorpions or Accept, you know, you had bands like Trance that sounded like Scorpions, Breaker that sounded like Accept, you know, all that. And then the Dutch bands and then the Japanese bands, but you could separate, oh, that, that, that's a very new wave of British heavy metal sound. They sound very British, you know. Nowadays, that doesn't matter. You, know, you could have a band that sounds just like Korn from Australia or from Israel, you know, that there's, you know, that, what was cool back then, that you, the, their cultures, you, you could hear the different culture in their sound, you know, and, and that's, that, that is definitely missing these days. And that's just because, like you say, the internet, everything's, you know, back then we had to trade tapes through the mail and stuff. Mm. So, it, you know, it was, it was a whole different vibe. You know, of course you had influences. A lot of the LA bands tried to sound like the new wave of British heavy metal bands, you know, Metallica, of course, yeah. they were the big influence, but they still had their own thing going, you know, obviously Metallica. So yeah. Interesting. I think the service that you're offering effectively though, is, is you're, you're providing the etymology of what we're going to be, uh, calling certain genres because if I said I'm from a thrash metal band in from Berlin nowadays that means fucking nothing but if yeah. I told you it sounds like Bay Area thrash then you sort of go ah now there's a context because we've got all these people talk about that same thing but yeah sure. well I remember the German thrash bands that was a big thing Sodom Destruction Creator you know a Tankard you know, and then you had a Hellhammer from Switzerland, you know, mm. so and that was kind of their own thing. That was the German, you know, uh, uh, you know, thrash metal that was, was different than the U.S., you know, Bay Area thrash metal. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I kind of miss that. That was kind of that was what was so cool and unique uh, back then, you know, and then you had all those other German bands running wild and Gravedigger and all these Halloween, of course. And, you know, of course, except. But, uh, you know, that was kind of the cool thing back then. And now, like you said, you don't, you know, it's, it's you don't even know or don't care where the bell, oh, the band from, you know, Spain. Oh, okay. They, you know, they just sound like any other, you know, band. And now, you, you know, you hear a lot of these bands from Sweden that sound like, uh, you know, some of the, they're going back to that L.A., you know, 80s kind of hair metal sound, mm. you know, which I think is cool. But it's, you know, you know, now you have all those influences. Before, every, every, it was on your own. You just kind of, you know, you had the 70s influence, you know, in the early 80s, but you had to kind of create your own thing. And that's what was yeah. so cool about the early 80s metal scene and the tape trading scene and the fanzines back then. It was exciting. It was new. You know, when Venom came out, there was no band that sounded remotely, oh my God, they're singing about Satan. It's like, this is crazy, you know? You know, now it's nothing. You hear Venom, it's, that's silly, you know. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's, yeah. But, yeah, that was what was so cool about it back then. You know, uh, just speaking to, like, the different kinds of, like, metal and different kinds of thrash, there, are, there is a UK thrash documentary, uh, the, mm. the history of UK-specific thrash, and there's also one on German thrash, but where they'll never see the light of day. Wow. Because... Um, they used original music or licensed music, but rather, and couldn't get the licenses for it. Uh, that's where we were smart. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, we got a lot of criticism. Dude, what are you playing? You're not playing like, uh, I mean, even, you know, to play stuff like uh, Exodus and bands like that. You know, they were on capital. They had a major publishing company to get the licensing. That's hundreds of dollars for to use mm -hmm. for, you know, for what? Two minutes of, of, of music, you know, to and that shit adds up. And, you know, we didn't have that kind of budget. So, um, you know, uh, my good friend, I don't know if you know, uh, Ralph Vieira, he does uh, several podcasts and stuff. He was in a band, yeah, still in a band, Thrash or Die, which mm -hmm. has a total Bay Area 80s thrash metal sound. So we use a lot of their music in it. And we use similar bands, you know, bands that were friends of mine that had demo tapes or that had unlicensed music or they owned their own music and they were more than happy to, to contribute, you know, for, for free, just give us credits in the, in the credits, you know, and, and a lot of it, it helped these bands. They said, man, since we're, we're in your movie, we've got this whole new fan base, you know, which is cool. And, uh, and, you know, that's cool. That's like the old school kind of way of just, you know, friendship and this and that. Now it's all about business and it's, mm. it, you know, labels aren't making any money anymore. So, you know, you can't even use, you know, I, I had a friend that did a, a guy here in the Bay Area did a, a, a documentary on bootlegs. He was a big video bootlegger and he had all mm. this, and it was a great documentary. He had like, 
Uh, Dave Mustaine was in it, Ian Gillen. I mean, he had some major people like talking it, but he used the music and he, and he goes, well, I can't, you know, when you do something like that, a live band and you have bands like Tool and Nine Inch Nails and, and Metallica, you know, video bootlegs, you can't substitute their music when you're showing the video to that kind of stuff. Yep. And I said, dude, there's no way you're going to get licensed. Oh, but I only did like a minute. I said, it doesn't matter. You're not. And of course, that's dead in the water, you know. So yep. it, it's a shame, but, you know, it, that that's 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 how it is. But that's the biggest challenge. You could use video footage as long as it's your own video footage shot. And we yeah. were very fortunate that Reality Check TV, Danny Shipman and Hugh, who were the, the two editors, they uh, uh, had all this footage from since the late 80s, early 90s from the Bay Area scene that we had access to. So, you know, we just put a bed of music underneath that kind of sounded similar and, you know, same thing. They also worked on a, another documentary I did for Cleopatra called Band vs. Brand. Uh, yeah, I didn't get around to watching it, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the concept that someone's actually asked the question, what? Yeah, the actually, it's a, it's, it's a really good movie, and a lot of people really love it. It's more on the business end, but it really is about the importance of branding in, in music, particularly hard rock and metal. Mm. And they were involved in that as well and, uh, you know, offered a lot of footage. So I was very lucky to, to be able to... Uh, do this on a low budget but work with some really key people and and and, and uh you know uh, uh make it into a really cool uh you know all, i think all the films we did wh whatever team i had from the la people from you know having a, a joe floyd and curtis mm. uh, as a editor and carl alvarez and and uh, uh rob uh they all were metalheads too. And so they all, we were all kind of, you know, on the same team and, you know, which made it a lot easier because when you have editors that don't know anything and you go here, put that uh, footage of, uh, you know, uh, James Hetfield and well, who's James Hetfield you know, you don't need to do it. You know, they knew right away how to yeah. set stuff up. You didn't have to explain every little word, you know? So that, yeah, that, that's always a plus. So yeah, I, I was very lucky at that point. Um, uh, my my approach to this is going to be just original music. I'm I'm lucky enough I can play guitar and I can I can I can record quite competently and I've got like a little network of musicians. So for the for the one video I've done so far, it was just like an hour and ten minutes of just riffs and just try, try and keep it themed. Like yeah. there's a bit where I'm talking about like kind of the new wave of British heavy metal, but the stuff that's associated with Roadrunner, like Battleaxe, Satan. So I'm like, right, well, let's come up with a few sort of Satan esque riffs for that bit, blah, 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 and try and make it somewhat faithful. For something like that, since, you know, that was all early 80s, and most of these bands recorded demos before they put albums out uh, on, on whether it be major or independent labels, you know, same thing, you're still going to have to pay licensing. But if you could get some of their demos, the demo, we, we did that with a lot of the artists there. We had the yeah. demo tracks where they owned, you know, the demo, the, the recordings ah. and the licensing for those. So if you could yeah, use some old demo tracks, that could definitely work out for you. That could but, work. Yeah. I've got an idea. But in some cases, sometimes the publishing companies will buy out the demos too to release for, you know, B-sides or whatever. But yeah, you have yeah. to look into it, yeah. We should we should do a low-budget documentary on documentaries that never got made yeah. because of licensing issues. Yeah. Well, a lot of them go straight to YouTube, <laughs> and then sometimes YouTube will put a, put a ban on it for licensing music, banned in this country or whatever, but... You know, it's yeah, it's not it's not as easy as people think. You know, yeah, oh, certainly a lot, a lot of uh, business bullshit and politics you have to go through for sure. Yeah, yeah. But jumping into the roadrunner stuff, you mentioned something about um, your podcast, which really just interested me, which is it went through roadrunner. Now, this is something I wanted to talk about later down my research. I, I kind of knew that blabbermouth blabbermouth was on roadrunner, but I. I don't know what that means. Like, I, I think it was something like Blabbermouth used the Roadrunner servers, and I'm trying to figure out to what end did that, to whose advantage was this entire thing? So in your case with Shockwave, why, what was the advantage of being hosted on Roadrunner? Was it just that you'd get more traffic exposure, because... Exposure, yeah. This is like, uh, it's just an exposure thing. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure that was the same with Blabbermouth, what they started. They basically, as you say, they host... Your, your podcast. So they've already had their website, the Roadrunner website. And obviously to them, it brings traffic in. Mine, not so much, but Blabbermouth was huge even back then. So they're going to yeah. bring a ton of traffic to the Roadrunner site. Now, financially, I don't know how it worked out for Bori at, at Blabbermouth, how they made their deal. And that's not for me to, to say, but um, 
obviously, when, once it got to a certain point, they, they went on their own. And same with me. I was at the point when Warner Brothers bought out Roadrunner toward, the uh, you know, what, around 2015, 14, whatever. Uh, 2012 was like when the axe dropped. But I think that actually owned a considerable amount since about 20, 2006. Yeah, and then they changed the whole website, the whole design, and it, that all got, and that's, that, yeah, it was around 2012, because that's when I got into the documentary. So that's when I kind of stopped doing the uh, skull sections. And that skull sections were kind of dead in the water. I got to give props to my partner, Matt Hartnett, who got me doing it again, because he's like, dude, you got to, because after I stopped the original skull sessions on Roadrunner, after that, I was getting tons of emails. Dude, what happened? You got to bring it back. I was like, I'm too busy doing the documentaries. I'm not going to. But now since I had this break, you know, Matt said, hey, I'll produce it. I'll, you know, do all the posting. I'll set everything up, you know. And so, you know, we, we got into it again, which is cool. But, yeah, as far as them hosting, for us, it, it was great because we had, you know, we had that exposure through. And I'm a technical idiot. I don't – my whole thing, I'll create, I'll do the podcast. And even when I did the original one with the uh, Shockwave's Hard Radio, which I still do, I'll still do the podcast for him, Tracy Barnes, he'll post it, you know. I just send him the MP3s, you do the rest, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know the codes and all that shit. You know, back then on iTunes and all that, you had to do all these coding and all this stuff. Now now it's easy. You could go through, a, you know, a, a Spreaker or Anchor, and they could post it through all the different – uh, channels you know for yeah. a field or whatever but um you know back then it was a very difficult thing so you you kind of needed a host to go through to get it uh and roadrunner was great for me we we had a great great thing you know the uh and i was able to you know get some sponsors and they let me they gave me complete freedom to do what i wanted and uh of course uh you know we had monty on quite a few times and uh you know but you know they you know it didn't it didn't limit me for who, you know, oh, you can't have a metal blade band on your podcast. Or you can't have the band from this level, you know, it, it nothing mm. like that. It was, it was complete freedom. So for me, it was, it was great. And it was never a big money thing for me. I mean, I might've made some money, you know, through sponsorships and that kind of stuff uh, through uh, different labels or whatever, or, you know, bands or whatnot, but um, you know, it wasn't, it just was enough money to keep it going. It wasn't, I never looked at it as a big moniker thing. Whereas something like, you know, obviously like Blabbermouth was, you know, a huge thing yeah. in its own so it was wise of them to to you know branch out on their own but uh, mm. yeah yeah but is are, they, are those old episodes still available anywhere yeah they are well we've been putting them up as archives we've got kind of since that website kind of went down i've still got all those and we just you know matt and i said you know sometimes there's certain way we try to keep it weekly mm-hmm. the podcast and sometimes I'm too busy, he's too busy, we can't get, so we'll throw up an archive episode. So that, like at Aerosmith, that was an old episode. That was yeah. from like 2008 or something. That was one of the wow. first ones we did. And you could probably hear it. I think that was done before Skype and all that. I think that was done with a little recorder, because little mini cassette recorders I had to uh, record through. So you could, you could definitely hear the difference. But we got some of those uh, archive episodes, but we figured rather than putting them all up, We'll kind of put them up sporadically, and and that way it's a good way for us to use as archive interviews. Hey, we don't have a new episode this week, but we got this episode, you know, ready for you. And a cool old archive interview, and and people love those old episodes. They love to go back to those, so yeah. it's fun. Yeah. All right. Let's let's jump into your time with the uh, with the bird. Uh, how did you become to be hired? <laughs> uh, well, that was the case. Was it was kind of interesting. It was nineteen ninety. I don't remember it was 1991 when I actually uh, uh, moved up to LA, but I was, it was funny. I was living in Orange County, uh, living at home. And, uh, you know, I was doing a little stuff in the music business. I was working for some, some great guys, uh, American music and entertainment. And, you know, I was working with, you know, Marty Friedman and a, a, a band of Sweden called Glory and Jonas Hansen and a few guys like that. I was kind of working out managing, but, you know, I needed to get out of Orange County. I wanted to get up uh, into, into L.A. And uh, my cousin had a place up in Hollywood and he was looking for a roommate. So I said, you know, I'm going to jump the gun. I didn't have a job or anything. I said, I'm going to move up, you know, save some money, moved up to L.A. Or right, in, right in Hollywood, right off the 101 freeway. Uh, in, in on Hollywood Boulevard and uh, 
as soon as I moved in, you know, I talked to some friends and I uh, talked to John Sutherland, who was a good friend of mine. He was an old school guy. You might know him. He worked at Metal Blade uh, for many years at, at Zomba Music, at Sanctuary. Uh, he's like the master of metal. You know, he's a, a few years older, but he saw all the bands from Zeppelin from the beginning. He, he was in my document, the first documentary, Pioneers of L.A. Hard Rock and Metal. But anyway, I got word to him that I was moving up to L.A. And he was close with Case, Case Wessels. And Case told him, hey, I'm coming out to L.A. And I'm looking for somebody to run the L.A. office. You know, would you be interested, John? And John had other things going. And John said, no, but Bob Nelbanian just moved up to Hollywood. You should hit him up. And uh, I didn't really know Case. I knew of him. And he knew me from the fanzine, from Headbanger. Because mm-hmm. uh, I was, you know, pen pals with, you know, like Ed Van Zyl, who was working with him and up working with him at the time before he did Mascot and, you know, the people at Ard Shock. So I had kind of a, a bit of a connection, I guess, in Holland with, with these guys. So uh, Case was familiar with me and he said, yeah. So it was kind of funny. The day I moved up to L.A., I get a call and I get it, you know, Case Wessels. Hey, it's this Case. I'm in I'm in town. You want to meet up? So we met up like at his hotel. And he basically offered me the job right there. And the funny thing is, I had no, ex- you know, Roadrunner was pretty small then. Their biggest band, they had just signed Sepultura. Uh, they were doing Beneath the Remains, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I don't know if it came out yet or, or not, but that was, uh, you know, this was obviously b- before Slipknot, before, all, you know, it was Sepultura. And I think, you know, King Diamond was their big band. It was just before Typo Negative. So they, you know, they were still, they were a big on the metal circuit, but they were a very independent metal label. And they yeah. never had a presence on the West Coast. On the East Coast, they, you know, had, had you know, a name for themselves with a lot of the the the, the bands and, and stuff. But on the... Um, West Coast, they never really had a presence. So that's what they obviously wanted to gain. So uh, I ended up, he ended up hiring me and uh, it was, it was really cool. And I basically was the only guy in LA and I worked out of my apartment the first few months, mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of a pain in the ass. They, they gave me a big phone fax machine. Every Back then, this was before emails, it was all faxes. So every day I would get like a hundred page fax from, you know, because I was doing retail. I was doing radio. I was doing press and publicity. So all those departments sent me all their things and I had to, you know, get all this together and it was kind of a mess. And then we ended up getting an office right on Sunset Boulevard that we shared with uh, Vault Management who were, uh, at the time, they I think they handled Motorhead and Nazareth, a few bands. And uh, they had like a one room office in there on their floor that was available and that they rented to us mm-hmm. uh but it was per- right on the heart of sunset strip below us was deaf american which became american records it was definitely it was rick rubin's label although wow. he was never there he always worked out of his limo or whatever but their whole <laughs> staff was right below us and next to us was scott mcgee uh uh, Doc McGee's, you know, LA office, mm-hmm. and across the street was Geffen Records, you know, and then a couple blocks down was the Rainbow Whiskey and Roxy. So it was like, dude, I'm right in the heart of, uh, you know, the Sunset Strip. So yeah, we did that for a while, and uh, uh, that uh, that worked out really, uh, really kind of cool, and it was, uh, it, I had some good times there. So the you mentioned the, so I guess the purpose of the LA office. This is where this is where I'm, I'm like. You'll notice this as I try and I try and pull dots together and I try and extrapolate and understand these things out loud. It's not great for broadcasting. It's not great to listen to me just trying to figure things out, but you have to just sort of stay with me. So the the purpose of the LA office was to establish a presence for Roadrunner on the West Coast, which they did not have before. What is the value of that presence? Is it an A&R presence or is it just a visibility? Is What is the value of presence in sort of 1990 United States music industry? Well, you know, it's funny because I was never talked about A&R. And what I would do if I would get, because I ended up, once we built a presence, we, we made the LA office, we had a uh, an address, and of course, people were sending tapes. And I just basically forwarded them everything to Monty, you know. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Monty wanted, because if there's some, and I would give a little note about what the band was like and whatever. Because at that time, he was kind of, they were trying to branch out of just being a, you know, kind of a thrash metal label. You know, same with Metal Blade at the time. They branched out, they signed the Goo Goo Dolls. And of course, eventually, you know, uh, uh, Roadrunner did the same. They, they signed a 
fucking great band called Last Crack when I was there. We'll get into that a little bit later. And of course, Typo Negative and a bunch of other bands that were outside the realm of, you know, just the thrash metal thing. But, you know, that was kind of the thing. So they wanted to do that. So that was the case. But I never, you know, I would go see bands, you know, and I would just kind of pass it on to Monty. I didn't really want that responsibility. I don't know if, you know, because Case after us, oh, dude, what, you know, go, if there's a band you like, you know, you can bring it to, we could sign it. But it's kind of like, you know, I, I was fresh at the label then and I was so busy doing, I had to do press retail and it was kind of a, it was, I'll be honest. It was kind of fucked up for me because here I am. I never worked out a label. I, I didn't know. And I was getting pressure. They had their, their press person and no disrespect to any of those guys there, but they had their press guy in New York, their uh, retail guy and, and the radio guys there and they would all push for me to do oh don't you know radio is more important than press don't do this and the press go no 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 you got to get the press no 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 retail you got to do this and the bottom line they were all kind of jealous that i was like this one-man operation and lived in sunny california you know mm -hmm. running this because i think a lot of those guys were hoping to get that job that they would have flew one of them over to run the office that was kind of uh you know my understanding from a lot of people there that was saying that so I had a lot of pressure on, oh, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. You know, it was kind of like I was just over, overwhelmed with shit. But I, I think I did, built a good presence. I mean, I got, you know, like there were magazines like, you know, BAM and uh, uh, Music Connection. I got, you know, a big feature on them and Music Connection. I got Monty Connor, a big A&R feature on there. And so I built them a presence. I got even uh, in the Hollywood Reporter, a little thing on Sepultura, you know, which was, you know, a big magazine. It's a, you know, it's a entertainment TV mag. So, you know, I built, and then, you know, all the local magazines, you know, the Rock City News and all the rags that were, you know, big, they were, you know, free, you know, the, like the BAM, I don't know if you know the, you know, LA Weekly, those kind of things, you know, so you know, all the news sections and all that, we were starting to, to build a bit of a presence. So, uh, uh, you know, that was good. And I was calling all the radio stations. We were getting some good radio reaction, you know. Uh, you know, Candy C was the big LA hard rock metal station. And we we're getting a little bit of traction with them and some of the, you know, obviously the college stations. So, you know, it, it worked well. But, you know, LA is such a spread out market and it's such a big, big market. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a, it, it, it was a, a stressful job in a way, you know, cause I was just, you know, come at it at all angles to do, to do all this stuff. The, the but, reason uh, I laugh, I laugh really hard is cause I was speaking, one of the first interviews you did for this was, uh, Steve Ricardo. Okay. If, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with that. I, I remember Steve, I didn't work at Roadrunner with Steve. I think he was there prior to me. He was oh, yeah, one of yeah. the first. He was he was, he was he was exactly what you were, but for the New York office. Oh wow! Okay, so, yeah, yeah, so I knew Enigma. He came to Enigma later, and I had a band that were on Enigma. No, this is early. This is eighty four. He was at Enigma, so yeah. or eighty eighty six when we signed. When was he at Roadrunner? Was he, was, yeah, he was. He was. He was. He was opening the, the office. So he was. Yeah, he was yeah. up, he opened the office with Holly Lane. So it was okay. eighty six, and he was there for about ten months. Okay, and it was yeah. the exact same experience. It was like, dude, we were just overwhelmed. We had no yeah, idea that's how I was. And of course, I never had any, you know, I was I was a fanzine guy. I was a metal fan. I didn't know about, you know, the business <laughs> and how that worked. And it was all thrown at me. And, you know, it was cool. I mean, I, I, I got no regrets. It gave me good good knowledge on, on the business and the independent stuff. And, you know, this is when, you know, you had all the, the foundations form and the FMQB and the CMJ conventions and all that stuff. And we go, you know, it was, it was a fun time to be in the music, a great time to be in the music business, but it was definitely overwhelming. Yeah. And let's look as part like this part, like the documentary, a documentary narrative is like a lot of people think that Rodron is like an American label. It's not, it's a Dutch label. It's born of this really interesting era in music. And that's why formed case blah 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 and then they come to america this big expansion and when when you hear that chapter of the story you just face with steve ricardo going it was a fucking shit show and i hated it <laughs> yeah it was i mean there were times i fucking hated it you know i ended up you know, kind of leaving the label because it was just like it just got too much it was just like mm. you know a lot of pressure but um you know it was a great experience for me for sure so it who else is with you? Did you? Do you ever get another person involved, or is it always you? 
No, it was just me. It was just me, actually. I should say I, I had a good friend of mine, um, a kind of as, as an intern, and uh, uh, you know, we, my, my buddy Sean Duncan, who uh, mm-hmm. plays with DC4 now, he was in Odin, Jeff Duncan's brother from Armored Saint, great drummer. What's up, Sean? And he used to just come around and he goes, hey, man, you know, I'm, you, you know, he wasn't working at the time. He goes, you know, I, I could do help you out, do some stuff for free or whatever. So I would have him call some of the stations and stuff. So and I let Roadrunner know I got this guy doing uh, and Because I had to call, make all I had to call, like I said, for three different departments. I had to be, you know, and and if it was slipping, hey, you know, this uh, the Sepultura record slip, you got to get back on radio. You got to get on them. So I had to concentrate more. You know, and then the retail guy was, hey, hey you can't neglect the retail. You know, you got. People don't know retail back then. You actually had a retail market to call up record stores and to go to record stores, and and which is kind of fun at the time. Dino was working at uh, a record store on Hollywood Boulevard, and this is just before he got involved with the Roadrunner. And I was going. Uh, I just talked to him the other day because you know they put out a new record, Fear Factory, yeah. and we talked about those old days. And he he was like this this total. He was he reminded me from ten years earlier how he was just avid tape trader and this we're talking 1991 and in the record store they had demo tapes for sale and he was pushing all these bands and you know back then he you know he did a lot to help out you know all limp biscuit and uh you know system of a down and static x and cold chamber he, he brought a lot of that stuff over to you know to monty's attention but he was at he was at like a guy at the record store so he was a guy i would call another people like that you would call up the record stores and you would have to mail them free stuff and Mm. talk to them you'd have to get the metal fans on there you would want them to play the music in the record store and push it to their you know it's about pushing it to their fans so you know you know i have to explain that now because people don't under record stores what yeah you know they don't get that stuff but no you need to explain it because i i I hate i hate it when when uh, when there's when anyone does an interview or when I do an interview or I, it's less of an interview more of a conversation, but when people say, "Oh, we didn't have the internet back then," I'm like, "Ah, oh, man, that's like the that's the line that's the line that tells me I've not been interesting enough." And someone's had to say that. But the simple fact is, this is why I'm asking about the present stuff because that matters more. The actual, the physical um, and tangible human being going into a, a shop and saying. Look, can you just push this last crack record, please? Yeah. Look, I'm from Roadrunner down the road. I know Brian Slagle rocks up here every Tuesday, but it's Wednesday now, and I want you to push. The- That's the kind of transactory nature. And that that means a lot. I mean, you know, back in the day, and you hear about stuff in the '70s. You know, like bands like Rush. You know, they were about to be dead in the water, and then some guy played Working Man. You know, out of a Chicago station, and that became a thing that everyone started playing it. And that's, you know, basically what happened with Metallica and all these other bands. You know, they, you know, you got one person to, 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 you know, to get it, or a major giant record store like, you know, Tower Sunset at the time, if you could get them to push some of the stuff, you know, and that's where they get all the celebrities coming at, it and it becomes, oh wow, I heard this band at Tower Records, and it's, you know, uh, so it, it did mean a lot back then, absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. It's because it's, it's just a dynamic I never even thought about. Because with Roadrunner, you hear all about the territory, so the UK territory, the German right. territory, and you understand that because, it's a, as I understand it, it's an A and R tactic. Do you want British bands? And the best way to get British bands isn't to fly case over every two days; it's to get yeah. an A and R function there. Um, but when it becomes domestic and it's just LA, I'm like, well, what's the actual function? Because you got New York, which is effectively the de facto headquarters as far as the rest of the world's concerned. So what's LA doing? But you've kind of hit the nail on the head, especially at the time in the early nineties, but it was, it was high culture, very high culture was, was LA at the time. So you were in the middle of the, of, of everything. And you were therefore in a much more advantageous position to take advantage of just de facto opportunities that happened there. Yeah, you know, I guess I get that's what that's my takeaway at the minute anyway. Definitely. And when bands came into town, uh, whether it be, you know, a typo negative or Sepultura or whatever, they would come in and play on the tour. I would bring in, you know, a lot of press interviews and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And I remember when, uh, you know, a typo were on their first album. They uh, opened uh, what was a slow, deep and hard. I think it was called. Yeah. Uh, they opened for the Exploited, which was kind of an interesting bill at the Hollywood Palladium. And I just remember uh, uh, bringing in 
tons of, of press uh, during their sound check or during the thing and them being interviewed. And, 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 you know, everyone says, Oh, Pete was very, Pete's, you know, watch out for Pete. He's very difficult to work with. He was the sweetest guy. He was like, so cool. He's like, Hey man, thanks, man. You really, you know, got us a lot of interviews. You're really good. You know, and he, he was very thankful. He was a really, really cool guy. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were interested in, cause that, that where they were getting a little bit of buzz with that, um, uh, what was that song? I'm fucking your girlfriends. Uh, what I know, was I know you're fucking someone else. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of, yeah, yeah, and that was kind of a big thing. A lot of people start, you know, it was kind of the the buzz uh, song. So uh, you know, there was some interest in them. Very, very, and this was you know like a couple of years before they broke big. So uh, mm. uh, it was exciting, and that you're kind of building this this kind of new thing on the West Coast. And again, you know, they were a big East Coast band, of course, with Carnivore and all that. But on the West Coast, you know, nobody really knew of them. So it was my job to kind of get build a bit of a presence uh, on that, uh, uh, yeah. you know, the LA magazines and, and some of that kind of stuff. So. I appreciate being very articulate and, and thorough on that message, just because it is taken. I've been doing this project for like, must be eight months now. And it, it actually was kind of news to me that there was an LA office in the first place. Um, only the last few months that I realized it was really a thing, but it, it well, makes I a lot of sense. It, I was going to say, after I left, Kathy Merritt uh, ran the LA office for, I think, several years after that. I don't know if you're speaking to her on Saturday. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So she's probably got some stories too. And she worked, I think by that time, they had a couple people working there. They had an actual office going on. Mm. Uh, but, um, yeah, she so uh, you know they they um had that office going for a while after after I after I left they kind of put a put a you know put an end to it and then they got her involved and uh, you know kept it going. It again. Yeah, 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 I guess it must have been all right because it wasn't a dedicated building; it was one part of an already active office which they rented out to you. So I guess it was kind of easy to just shut it down and bring it back up. It was again. basically a one room. It was like you know the size size of a, a big bedroom, you know, uh, basically <laughs> uh, uh, one room office, you know, and. Uh, uh, but it was cool because I shared, you know, the floor with with vault management, and they had this uh, bal balcony, giant balcony patio that overlooks Sunset Boulevard. So, oh, wow. I, that's just at night I could hang out. I could go to the whiskey and the Roxy, and sometimes at night I would go uh, have some friends over, some chicks over on the on the on the balcony and whatever. And if I got too drunk, I would I had a couch in the office. <laughs> I would just crash out on the couch wake up in the morning, get on the phone and call. So yeah, I, I don't know if they knew that, but uh, you know, it, it, it was, it was kind of cool. And that wasn't all the time. It did happen a couple of times when I got, when I got wasted, but uh, yeah, it, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. So how did it, tell me through it ending then. So at what point were you like, this is getting a bit much now, boys and girls? Well, that's what it was. It was, it was getting a bit much. And I was working, um, working with a band called Armed Forces that were, a fr I had a band called Eden that, that were on Enigma and that, that after the record, right after the record came out, they, the singer left, you know, and that kind of split that apart. And he had this banner on forces and they signed with a uh, uh, bizarre straight records. And he kept telling me to get on with them. And it was Herb Cohen's label. If you know uh, about Herb Cohen, he started the label in, in the sixties with Frank Zappa, mm -hmm. bizarre, bizarre records. And, uh, and they had Screaming Jay Hawkins. They had all the bizarre bands. Alice, all the early Alice Cooper was on straight, you know, the first two Alice Cooper records. Uh, and they had all these different Tom Waits was was on the label. So any band that was kind of weird and bizarre back then, and they just basically relaunched the label through Rhino. And I think Rhino was going through, it was kind of a clusterfuck at the time, because they were going through SEMA at the time. Then Rhino switched over to Warner Brothers, WIA. So there was a big uh, change over there. And I, uh, uh, so anyway, he kept trying to get me to, to work with him. And then it wasn't working out with Roadrunner. It was kind of a mutual thing. I think they kind of knew it, you know, and I, I spoke with Doug Keogh, who was the president. He was a great guy. Really, I don't know if you spoke with Doug. Doug uh, we're, we're, I'm spoken to him directly. We're in cahoots is what I say. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. He, he left. A, I don't know what he's doing now, but he was he was a guy really. He kind of got what I was going through, you know, and and he he was really cool. He was like the VP at the time, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, so I spoke with him, and you know, uh, you know, it, it you know basically said, "Hey, this this isn't going to work out." And then I started in, and to be honest, working at Bazaar, I was getting paid pretty much the same, but it was like 
this is great. I'm, I'm working with one or two artists. You know, I would work sometimes with some of their uh, other bands. They, they had other artists called Francis X, Francis X and the Bushmen. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I would work some of their, you know, I mean, they had all these classic, you know, Solomon Burke, you know, Screaming Jay Hawkins. So I would, you know, kind of be involved a little bit with that stuff, but I was mostly like the rock guy and they were kind of building, you know, it wasn't like they had, being with Roadrunners, they would sign bands every every other week, there would be a new death metal band. Oh, this week you're working with Gorguts. What frustrated me a lot, and, and I'll get to th- this band who I thought, I know this is part of your questions, yes. who I thought really should have made it was Last Crack. Mm-hmm. When that Burning Time record came out, the second record, I was like, oh my God, this is this could be huge. This is a great record. Dave Durden produced um, this, you know, I mean, this was like, you know, major label kind of uh, greatness. And, you know, of course, they went over budget on that record and they gave it a push. And then it was like onto the next. And I'm kind of like, no, man, you can't just go on to the next. This this is a band that's going to take a while to build. You know, you mm-hmm. can't let this record go. Let's keep going, you know, but they had to keep the machine going. They had to, you know, you know, realize that, hey, maybe uh, we have to just move on. And, you know, Sepultura was starting to take off then. And then they got all these other new, uh, you know, thrash bands that, you know, obituary, deicide, all this other stuff. And I was never into the death metal scene. You know, that wasn't my so, thing. I had to kind of bullshit my way talking to the radio guys. You know, they'd be like, oh, yeah, man, you know, this the vocals on the this new Gorguts record is, is so much, you know, it just kind of reminds me of obituary meets, you know, anchor. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. I know what you're saying. You know, it's like <laughs> I, I didn't really know that market, but it was kind of that kind of thing. So, you know, anyway, it was kind of like. I, I I wasn't really it wasn't really for me to be honest. I, 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 Sell last crack to me then because I've I've listened to a little bit because I've I've been trying to just go through every single record that Roadrunner put out like as a direct signing so I can get a feel for it, but I haven't meditated on it. So describe or sell last crack to me. You know it's fine. They were kind of in that um, uh, market that I will say that alternative metal. They had that so to speak, a bit of that Seattle sound. A lot of people right. thought they were a Seattle band because that was that was this joke back then is if you're from Seattle, boom, everyone everyone wanted stuff from Seattle. I remember trying to pitch them to, to KNAC and they really liked it. They said, oh, Dave Jordan, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's a, and then I'm talking to the music director. Yeah, I think we're going to add them. You know, they said, you know, we really love the Seattle bands. And then I said, oh, yeah, great. I love the Seattle bands too, but actually – you know, last crack, they're from Madison, Wisconsin. They're not from, and they're like, oh, they're not from Seattle? I said, no, they're from Wisconsin. But they, you know, they kind of got that, you know, Dave Jordan produced, who produced Alice in Chains. And, you know, like, yeah, they got that kind of sound. Oh, well, you know, uh, I thought they were from Seattle. Uh, and just because they weren't from Seattle, they ended up not, I mean, it was the dumbest thing, you know, mm. it was like, and, and uh, you know, I should have said, oh, yeah, they're from Seattle. Yeah, if, if I knew it was good, you know. But, it, I mean, it was that kind of mentality. They they just did not get that that break, you know. But, yeah. you know, people love that record. And now, you know, they, they came out with an uh, album recently on EMP Records Combat, uh, David Ellison's label. And a uh, fantastic record. You know, we're talking, you know, what, 30 years later and still uh, amazing. There's uh, Butto is just such an amazing singer. But I thought that, that, that was a band that really could have broke down. Unfortunately, just had bad luck. And, of course, they, they had a lot of internal problems with 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 Butto and the rest of the guys he ended up leaving and you know which which is always the case with stuff so mm. i guess maybe in the end you know roadrunner made the, the best decision not to invest so much money into them when the band you know eventually was bound to fall apart but you know for it is what it is but i thought i thought that was a great record i thought that could have been uh, uh been something pretty huge i'll give it a proper a proper will because i've been looking through at the trades and consumer press to try and you know, I'm really tedious with this project, so I'm trying to figure out what was what was the Roadrunner press strategy like and things like that. And I've, I found a few weird patterns with the UK press. It's all really boring shit, but I like it. Um, and Glass Crack do get a fair bit of a push in that period. They have they they have got their fingerprints all over the press. I we mean, got some good press for them, and I got some good press on the <laughs> West Coast. It just did not translate for whatever reason mm. uh, in, in, into sales. It never got that. You know, because at that point, you know, this is the thing. If you're an underground thrash death metal band, you know, you're on that underground level. You could sell 10,000 records and make, you know, make good money. You know, Mm -hmm. those bands, 
you put them in the studio for three, four grand, five grand at the time. I don't know how much, you know, they'd turn out records. They would tour in a van on their own, this and that. I think that the last crack, that was their biggest budget record at the time. I don't know if I should say, but it was like $80,000, which was pretty huge then with Dave Jordan. And then they had a whole mixed up with the, the tape. They ran out of budget. So the mix isn't that great on it because, you know, Roadrunner said, hey, we're out of budget after you know, 80 grand was a lot of money. So mm. you're going into the next territory. And when you're you're dealing with bands like Last Crack, you're you're dealing with, you know, the sound, all those bands that were coming out with records, Soundgarden, you know, Alice in Chains and, you know, uh, Jane's Addiction and all those kind of bands that you're you're having to compete in that marketplace with because we were yeah. trying to get them on Caro Q and all those those labels and of course back then Pearl Jam you know the major labels had the money to push you know to the radio stations and to everything else to do that you know Roadrunner <laughs> wasn't quite there yet they got there yeah. afterwards you know but you know this was a little too premature I think I think if Last Crack came out at the time you know when Slipknot or Nickelback you know, came out when Road Road is a bit more established, it would have been a different story. But yeah, yeah. Who was your favorite to work with in your brief time? Uh, Last Crack, although I never really worked with them personally. I, I met with them when they were in LA. Uh, yeah. The guys in um, Malevolent Creation came into town. They were super cool guys. Uh, even though, you know, again, I'm not a big death metal guy, but they were really cool guys, really great band um and uh pete Steele was was super super cool you know like i said uh when i met with him uh you know and, and you know it was always a thing oh you know be careful with pete oh pete you know pete you know uh but he, he was a sweetheart really cool guy um so yeah i would say those uh bands sepultura you know they were cool we went on their bus to do the uh, video shoot for was it a rise i think it was a rise um yeah it was the, the arise record actually that i was mm -hmm. working at, that had just come out and uh we i was on the bus with supple we went out to the desert i don't know if you remember that desert shirt sh yeah. uh, shoot where they're on the crosses in the middle of, and we had to go like five hour drive on this kind of tour bus and i was with billy gould and dino uh, from fear factory before oh, when he was just forming fear factory and he's pitching me as new band fear factory you know and, <laughs> and uh and him and billy were friends and it was a great trip up there. And so I remember that that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, but those, yeah, those, those were the bands. Like I said, I was only there for about a year. So, yeah. But, but it was good. Yeah. It was good experience for me. I, no regrets. Being a man who knows you way in and out of the business and you've obviously had a history with all these people. What do you consider the, the legacy of Roadrunner to be? Cause I know what I think it is, but I came in, 15 years ago when I was like 16 years old. That's when I sort of like, that's my heyday. Mm. So I have an idea of what I think the legacy is, but I'm, I'm trying to get the perspective from other people as well. So what do you think the legacy of Roadrunner is? And I know it's a bit of an open-ended question. Yeah. You mean the legacy as far as what band? Or as what in, band? well, the thing is that for me, it's like, well, look, you look at the Slipknots and Nickelbacks of the world and they, they managed to go toe to toe with the mainstream music. And they were a disruptive force and a disruptive vehicle for the wider music industry. So I think their legacy sits somewhere in there. Um, and I sometimes think what could have been if the Warner deal didn't happen? You know, well, where would we be sat now? Would we be talking or would, would Roadrunner still be an independent entity uh, still innovating? You know, that's, that's where my headspace is always at when I have to think about the legacy of the label. Well, the interesting thing about the independent labels back then, you know, it's funny when I was working for Roadrunner, um, Nobody gave them respect in, on the West Coast. Oh, they're the independent. They're the independent death metal label. I would meet with people at, you know, uh, you know, uh, clubs like you know the Coconut Teas or whatever industry and ASCAP industry thing. And oh yeah, that's Bob. He works for that that small death that death metal label. And they would joke, you know, these are guys that worked at Columbia and all. And of course, everyone had the egos and stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, he you got that death metal, yeah, Somebody, you know, and they kind of mock it and whatever. And it's like, hey, fuck you, you know, whatever. But it was kind of that kind of vibe. But, you know, Monty was was very smart. And I think, and so was Case, obviously. They know how, they knew how to grow that label. And, you know, very similar with Metal Blade. They started out with all these very underground, you know, thrash metal bands, death metal bands, very underground music. And the thing about it was, I always thought at the time for me, 
dude, you're signing way too many bands. But their whole thing is you sign a bunch, 10 bands, and you know, for not a lot of money, but these underground bands, they will bust their ass. They're not the the problem with these Hollywood bands that are signed with the major labels, they have this rock star attitude. No, we're gonna wait till we play, you know, the country club and then play, you know, the Hollywood Palladium. We're not gonna go out on this little mini tour in a van and you know uh i mean a lot of them did do that you know i'm not saying all of them but the thing about the thrash death metal band they were just so happy to get a fucking record deal you know even if it was a small kind of you know few thousand dollar record deal they would bust their ass go out on the tour and they would sell ten thousand records these guys on their own word of mouth get on all these college radio stations underground they built that to the extent where they were able to get break a band like a typo negative you know they had enough money and enough clout at that time and it's all about building the label and you could say the same with metal blade with you know they broke with the goo goo dolls you know uh it was outside of the realm of the metal blade regular rosters uh roadrunner broke with nickelback who was way outside of that but they built they built that independent label into almost like a major label status where they were able to break a band like Nickelback at the time. And prior to that, uh, Slipknot, you know, that was a big thing. And prior to that, Typo Negative, I think Typo Negative was their first platinum album. And once they got to that level, then they kind of got the respect. Whoa, Roadrunner, they, you know, before then it was when I was there, they were kind of, I mean, I don't want to say they were like a joke of a label, but on the West Coast, they, you know, it might have been different on the East Coast, but people are like, ah, rah, 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 that, that is death metal label. All they do is that that crappy death metal shit, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, we we got, you know, we got Nirvana. We got the, we got the, the real shit. You got, you know, it was it was kind of that kind of attitude. Mm. But I think once, you know, Typo broke and they were on, you know, major radio and major, you know, and I, that's what led to Slipknot. And that's what led to, you know... Uh, Nickelback yeah. and, and everything else. So it was a small growing process. And that's what was cool about the independent labels that they took their time to grow. And now if you look at it, with when on the music scene, I mean, we're jumping, you know, 30 years later with all the bullshit going on. What are the big labels now? The, the major labels don't mean shit. You know, you look at Nuclear Blast, Roadrunner, Metal Blade, Century Media. They've almost got more clout in the, at least in the hard rock metal world maybe not in the pop world, but in the hard rock and metal, they're the big labels. They're bigger than the majors in that sense, you know, mm. because they did it right. They did it from a grassroots level. And uh, you got to respect that. And I, I respect the hell out of Monty. He was very smart and and uh, how he, uh, you know, signed artists and budgeted them and 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 worked with them. And so, uh, yeah, I, I give credit to the whole staff there, you know. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. They did it right. Sure. I have no more questions for you about Roadrunner, unless you've got either a story or an anecdote which I didn't touch upon, which maybe you've been thinking about while you know in the last couple of days. No, man, it was it was it was an interesting time. I was naive, very naive. Like I said, I I, I started uh, you know, and of course at the time I was like, you know, I just moved to L.A. I was in my early twenties or whatever, and I was like, yeah, I was going out every night partying, and it was you know kind of like. You know, I, I took it and part of my job was to go out and see bands, you know, and I would report to Monty if there was, you know, bands that were good or whatever. But that was, you know, I was just like, hey, man, this is fucking great. You know, I'm getting paid to just party and get drunk and, you know, hang out and see metal bands. And, you know, and, and at the time, that was when all the clubs were going on, you know, in L.A., the Cat House, the Exposure 54 and you know, bordellos and, uh, you know, whatever other uh, scream, all the nightclubs they had. Every night had a different, you know, Thursday night, KNAC, Thunderdrome. And every night there was a different metal night, you know, in, in Hollywood. So it was just like, I was out every night. You know, I I had a blast. It was, it was a great time. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to let you get on with your day, but I thank you very much. I'll tag you in all the socials and I'll keep in touch as things progress. Right on. All right, Jim. Well, I appreciate it, man. Yeah, cheers, Bob. All the best, mate. Okay.